What the hell's the name of this thing? Is this Wayne's World? The award-winning Evan Grant? I can't even count anymore on my fingers and toes. Kevin Sherrington. Kevin Sherrington, clown number one. Barry Horn. Right. He tried to get me in mid-shoe. Hello, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Ballsy, the Sports Day DFW Dallas Morning News Podcast. Basketballsy. No, it is not basketballsy. You are not going to bastardize this name that I came up with by putting that kind of stuff on it. We have uh, this week, we're going to have our uh, our baseball podcast with Evan Grant, who is in Seattle with the Mariners. Also, we talked to David Moore, uh, who covers the Dallas Cowboys, and tells us he, who the top five guys are on the Cowboys draft board. Dave, David Moore is, is not as quite an exotic place. I believe he's in mm. uh, Rockwall. N- no, Where does no. David live? He lives right outside of Capel. Capel. Okay. All right. And But now we have with us on our basketball <laughs> podcast the one and only Mark Folliwell, Voice of the Dallas Mavericks. The most illustrious North Texas graduate we will have with us today. On this podcast? Or, or, or on all the podcasts today. Take that, David Moore. Wow. That's a, wow. Mark, how are you? I'm great. Good morning. It's great to speak to you guys. I'm staring out the hotel room window. I've just cracked my uh, balcony door so I can breathe in some of the fresh mountain air of Salt Lake City. It's a beautiful day here. There's still snow on the mountains, and oh. I'm looking forward to talking to you guys. Snow on the mountains. How about that? Isn't that nice? There is. It is. Yeah. And, there's, and there's snow. Well, there's not snow. There's not snow in the forecast for the Mavericks. It's spring for the Mavericks. They have made a, a, a comeback. They are alive again when we thought they were dead. The, the, certainly with the loss of Chandler Parsons, Darren Williams was hurt. team was going south. And the next thing you know, J.J. Barea goes crazy. They get some great play off the bench. Justin Anderson, the rookie, is playing lights out, and the Mavericks are making their big run. They are set the seventh seed at the moment. We'll see where they end up. But what is your take on what's happened here at the end of the year? Well, a couple of things. I would think probably number one is that they were able to take advantage of a portion of the schedule. We're in a six-game winning streak. They played two teams who were over 500, one of whom was Memphis who is very, very banged up right now. Now, I thought they went and played a great game in Detroit. I thought they caught Detroit at a really good time, by the way, on the final game of a nine-game homestand, the longest homestand anybody's had in the NBA this year, and right before they were about to go out of town and play a big game with Chicago. And I think that Rick has done something, you know, since the NCAA tournament is all kind of fresh on our minds and how it went down and how the tournament is played. Whenever Williams went out and Parsons went out and the Mavs were having so much trouble on the defensive end of the floor, number one, he wanted to do something to help that out. But number two, I think Rick did something that reminds me very much of what a 13 seed would do trying to upset a four seed or the, uh, the always in vogue upset of the 12 over the five. And that is when, when you shorten the game, when you play fewer possessions, when you milk the clock, and of course you have a longer shot clock to milk in college, but that can be sort of an equalizer when there's a talent cap. And when you've lost two starters, as the Mavericks had, then they were sort of in the talent cap in some regards to other teams that they were facing. And I think that uh, playing it slowly helped make their defense better. It helped mitigate the fact that two players were out of the lineup, two starting players were out of the lineup by playing it that way. And I think it's allowed them to uh, take advantage of the strengths that they have as a team and sort of hide some of the weaknesses that they have as a team. So to me, that is really in a nutshell kind of what's been able to happen with the team in the six-game winning streak. That you you mentioned something interesting there. You talked about the NCAA tournament, which I think is, is more of a coach's tournament than a player's tournament, or college basketball yes. is more of a coach's game. 
is, is, sure. is are the Mavericks more of a player's team or a coach's team? That's a great question. I don't think I've ever thought of that. But don't I encourage him say, by saying it's a great question, Mark. Well, I, I, didn't, okay. I, well, I, I couldn't hear him. Did he say it was a great question? Yeah. Wow. It, 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 it always twice. upsets Kevin when I compliment your question. It's unbelievable. I, I, I noticed this. I, I, yeah. I sense a pattern. This happened the last time that we were talking together. He's very sensitive. So, so this, is why, this is why I like the question, and this is why I'm, I'm going to tell you how I would answer that is it's a coach's team. And the reason being is that – Let's look at the last five years of the Mavs and what has been the constants. Carlisle, the coach, and centering on Dirk. And so, to some, you know, I can't say it's all a coach's team, obviously, because Dirk generates so many opportunities for other players to have success off of him because of the attention that he draws. However, when you have eight new players, which is basically what we've been talking about for five years running with the Mavs now, Every year there are significant new players, and we're not just talking about churning the end of the roster to quote what Bill Parcells used to say. And we're talking about significant starting caliber player turnover every year involved to the Mavs. So when you're turning the team over that frequently, I mean, and this is why college is a coach's game, because the players come and go very quickly. The coaches are the mainstays. The coaches are the face of the program, for lack of a better term. And I think in this case, you know, when you have one player who's a constant and then a lot of changing around that one player and the head coach, then I would have to say that the answer to your question, Barry, is that first and foremost right now it's a coach's team because he's okay. having to adjust and formulate game plans based on all of this changing personnel. All right. Kevin wants to ask a question now. Prepare yourself for a not-so-great question. Uh, there, there, thanks very much. No, the, my question is that, you know, the, the whole slowdown issue with, with, the, with the Mavericks and, and being part of their success here late – is could he would he have done that if uh, if Parsons and Darren Williams were both playing? No, I don't know. And that also is that's a great question. By oh! the way. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Mark. It, it, it is, and and I mean it's it's a tough question to answer. I will say that the evidence would probably suggest that he probably would not have done that. And even Rick himself admits that this sort of late season change in philosophy was born out of desperation, and it was born out of their backs being against the wall and out of the fact that they went out defensively that day against Sacramento, which is just over two weeks ago now, mm -hmm. and gave up the most points that they had given up in a non-overtime game since 1992. I mean, they went out and laid an egg in Sacramento two weeks ago, oh, yeah. giving up 133 points, and I think at that point they had lost three straight on the road. They were 35 and 38, and, and the saying goes that desperate times call for desperate measures, and the Mavs were clearly in a desperate situation at that moment, and that's why they started making the changes that they made. So I doubt we would have seen a lot of those things had had you had a fully healthy complement of players. Plus, now, Chandler Parsons is not uh, any defensive wizard either, and so it, it, sure. you're, you're asking different uh, guys to come in and pr who present a different skill set. And certainly guys, and, 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 and not to say that guys don't buy in, but uh, Justin Anderson, who is at this point in his career a very uh, athletically gifted um, a player who's, whose full game has not been rounded out yet and may not be for a couple of years, uh, who comes in and, and just plays great defense, uh, gives you somebody that the, the Mavericks didn't have on their roster otherwise who, who can do the things he can do. And, and I, I want to ask you something that, that I ask um, Eddie Sef We're going to – we're cross-referencing now. Uh, okay. I asked Eddie Sefko on Sports Day on Air uh, last week is that 
What is the ceiling you think on Justin Anderson? Is he a three and D guy? Is that the ceiling or is he something maybe more than that? Well, three and D guys are becoming more and more critical to team success and are taking on bigger roles. So, you know, a three and D guy can mean a lot of things. Damari Carroll with Toronto and formerly with the Atlanta Hawks was a three and D guy who worked himself into being about a 12 or 13 point per game score with Atlanta last year. And that led to him signing a huge contract in the offseason. So do I think that Justin has the capability to be that kind of three and D guy? Sure. Absolutely. I don't see why there's, there's no reason to me why he can't be a three and D guy, but, but that doesn't mean that you don't score. And like I said, Carroll, for example, would be a guy with Atlanta last, last year. That was a really important piece to the puzzle for them. That was, uh, a low to mid-teens per game score. And I don't see any reason why that a couple of transition dunks a game, a couple of lob passes, consistently knock down a couple of threes. There, we found a way right there to get the guy, what, 12 to 14 points right. over the course of a game. So, so I don't see that there's any reason why Justin can't be someone who scores along the lines of what Damari Carroll did for Atlanta last year that, that led to him landing that big contract in Toronto last summer. What would you like to see him work on most before next season? Shooting the ball from the perimeter. Yeah. Because if you're going to be a 3 and D guy, you've got to be <laughs> you got to have the three. the three. I, I understand. <laughs> well, you... three, and he's 28% right now. Okay. So that would right. be it. Yeah. But it, now, uh, certainly I think it, any, most people would say since Devin Harris, the, the Mavericks' best, the best uh, draft pick has been Jay Crowder. Uh, until yes. this season. Do you think Correct. that uh, Justin Anderson is can be a better player than, than Jay Crowder? Well, Jay's having a really good year with Boston, yes, he and is. he's a 35-minute-a-game player. So, of course, to be able to put up the numbers that Jay puts up in Boston, Justin would have to get playing time that would be along those lines. And with Matthews here, and with presumably the Mavs committed to keeping Chandler Parsons, as part of what they do, I don't know that the minutes are going to be there for him to show out the way that Jay Crowder has in Boston. But that doesn't mean that he can't be your number one wing guy off the bench, and he slides between both positions. He plays some shooting guard and some small forward. So the answer to that question is, can he be? It's possible, but we're going to have to wait and see what the Mavericks' plan for roster construction is going forward. If the, if the plan is to stick with the path that they're on right now, then he's going to have a hard time getting on the floor as much as Jay did in Boston or does in Boston to be able to put up those kind of numbers. But can he contribute at a high level? I don't think there's any reason he can't. I don't think there's any reason he can't be. For example, like next year, your plan is that he's your, like I said, he's your number three wing. There are two clear-cut starters, and then there's a guy who comes off the bench and bounces back and forth between both shooting guard and small forward and gives you energy off the bench and plays defense and rebounds and gets to be a better three-point shooter. I think that's a very realistic idea for Justin Anderson and how he can contribute for them next year. Do, do, you, do you think the events of, of the last week and a half, of the last two weeks, would cause, cause the, the Mavericks to change their philosophy on Chandler Parsons? I think the only thing that would cause a change would be if things – health-wise, did not progress the way they hoped they would. Okay. I mean, that's basically what Mark said about, I don't know, I think it was before the Knicks games when he said it, so it's almost two weeks ago now, uh, that the, the plan, of course, is that he's a long-term part of the franchise. However, it certainly would be dictated on how they examine him from a health perspective this offseason. So to me, you know, they've got a player who's going to hit free agency who someone is going to make a big offer for. And his ability to score is something that with, with Dirk 
reaching close to the end, however long it's going to be. But they need somebody who can put the ball in the basket, and they need somebody with Justin Anderson's skills too. I don't think that you can look at it and say, well, we need this guy's skills, but we don't need the other person. You need both. You need a roster full of good players. So I don't think this limited run of success impacts any of their thought process because there are things that Parsons can do that they need you know, that it, Anderson can't do. It, and the same with Anderson. There are things that he does much, much better than Parsons that the Mavs need also. So I think you need both guys to be perfectly honest with you. As long as we're just talking right now and, and a lot, not a lot of millions of people aren't listening or maybe hundreds of thousands are listening, I got to tell you, I was, I'm, I'm never in awe of you as much as I was when you got to talk to Walt Frazier in that, in that Nick, uh, Nick game during the broadcast. Is, is at, and he's, what, 72, 73 years old? Just turned 71 years old Seven, uh, the day before we had him on 71 there. years old. Was that as great? An ex- that would have been the highlight of, one of my life, I think, in talking to an athlete. You're lying. Talking to an athlete, yes. Because when I was growing up— You're a big up, Clyde fan? Uh, yes, I was. Walt Frazier, Southern Illinois University. Uh, yes, I was. And when he was with the Knicks, and they won two championships, and he carried them on the on his back uh, against the Lakers in, in Game mm-hmm. Seven. Uh, was that as big a thrill for you as it was for me just to watch? That was an incredible thrill. I mean, Walt is so personable. I've always admired his work on the air as a broadcaster, and obviously very, very familiar with his role in the Knicks title teams in 1970 and 1973, and. Look, he's just, you know, he's got such a persona about him. The fashion flair, the, the does, rhyming, does he still the vocabulary. Have I mean, all of the things that are all about Walt Frazier, just he's got such a larger-than-life persona in the game. So it was, it was uh, awe-inspiring and, uh, to, to quote a word that people love to use a lot on social media these days, very humbling experience. So it was it was really cool to be to have him on our show. Kevin asked about his fashion flair. If you if you had seen Walt sitting next to uh, Falwell and uh, and Harper when Harper moved over, yes, he still has his fashion flair. He had that jacket. Oh, on. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he brought it just like he does every night. And I, I love the fact that when and you may have noticed this, Barry, when he was on, that uh, you know he talked about the challenges of being a young player in New York yep. and adjusting to being a player there and the nightlife. And, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that it made it easy for Clyde to be Clyde. And sometimes you had to be careful with that. So I love the fact that he embraces this. Uh, and there's no better phrase I can give you for it than this larger than life persona that he has. And, and it was, it was a great thrill to have him on the telecast. You know, Barry grew up in the Bronx. So obviously that's why he's such a Knicks fan. I grew up in. Sure. in I you, was a Knicks fan. Well, I, I was. I, I, I was, and uh, in, 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 I was born here in Dallas, but I grew up in Houston. As a, as a Houston kid growing up, the the Rockets had just come from San Diego, so they, there was that to follow. But I was a I was a big Knicks fan, and you you couldn't help but be a Knicks fan of those teams with Earl Monroe and and uh, and Walt uh, Frazier. Walt Frazier. Just just the West Sunset. It was just a, a great team, and that was such a. Uh, uh, no, 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 I'm sorry. Willis, I was thinking, I'm making my up with my bullets. Bill Bradley. Now. I was also a fan of the bullets. Okay, uh, but those were such well, great. The, the, the thing that you had, Kevin. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, but I want to just add. I think probably just just putting try to put myself back in that time <laughs> is you had somebody that appealed to everyone. You know, if you wanted to have the flashy point guard, you had Earl the Pearl Monroe, and you had Walt Frazier. And if you wanted to be, if you were more of a fan of the conservative button-down Ivy League guy, then Bill Bradley appealed to you. And Dave DeBusher was a really yes. hard-nosed player. And Willis Reed was a great big man and a tremendous captain and a tremendous leader. So you had, and, and 
Phil Jackson was this hard-nosed, scrappy, everyman sort of guy off the bench. So you just look up and down their roster. And as, as, long, and, and, as, as long as we're in Dallas, we should mention Dave Stallworth, too, who, who I yes. think snuck his way in when he came back from the heart attack. That's correct. Uh, mm-hmm. Dallas but, but the question I want to ask is that, all right, that was a, a great era for New York basketball. A great era for New York basketball, and now look at it. And what has it been for the last what twenty years that 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 has been nothing? It's it, and, and to me, the fact that the NBA does not have a championship caliber team in New York is just a sin. I, I can't believe that the league has gone this long with the, the mess that it is now. Nineteen ninety nine was. I mean, they were in the finals in ninety nine. And then things went downhill fairly quickly after that. And then they what they won a playoff series, I believe, in 2013, and took Indiana. I think they went six games with Indiana in the second round in 2013. Yeah, it is. I mean, I love going to Madison Square Garden. I love being there with Derek Harper. Uh, Barry, I'm sure, probably yes. knows this, but I mean, you are a you are a really really loved person in New York if you're part of Nick's success and and. Even though he wasn't a champion, I mean, he's within one game of winning a championship. And so every time we go to New York, the the guys in the arena come over to Derek. And this has been in times when we haven't been doing a game together because it was a network television broadcast or on our own broadcast. And the in-arena camera operator and a producer come over and they say, Derek, we're going to put you on camera during the next timeout during the game. Is that okay? And he's great about it, of course. And the PA announcer comes on and says, once in Nick, always in Nick. And they show some highlights of Derek Harper doing things in the playoffs in the mid-90s, and the place goes berserk for him. And, I mean, it's a great, great great basketball town and arena and vibe, and I love going there. And I love the Madison Square Garden, Oregon, when it gets the people chanting defense. And it's it's a great place to go, and I wish they were better because it would be even more electric there if it were. And maybe maybe Porzingis is going to make that happen. Uh, maybe, but let, let's let's get back to the Mavericks. I'm sorry, I apologize for taking you distracted us, us to taking us off on. on but uh, but uh, but you seem to like it, yeah. and you don't like anything I do. <laughs> so, but I, I want to ask you this. Uh, I, I'm I'm kind of curious about the the Mavericks. They have the game against uh, Utah tonight, and then they uh, end the season against uh, San Antonio on Wednesday night, I believe. What happens? Yes. What what would happen if that's the must win game for the Mavericks to get in the playoffs? What do you th- how do you think that would that affect Pop's coaching and lineup he puts out there at all? I don't think so. It would affect it any way whatsoever. And I actually had a conversation with someone who has some connections to the San Antonio organization very recently and kind of laid out a similar scenario, feeling like I knew what the answer to it was. But I was curious what somebody who was much closer to the organization than I am would think about it. And they said it wouldn't change a thing. Pop's mindset is... I'm going to do whatever I have to do to help my team put itself in the best position to be successful in the playoffs. And, you know, I, I asked along the lines of a lot of times late in the baseball season, you will say, you will hear managers and players say, well, we have to respect the game because right. how we perform dictates the fate of other teams. And I sort of kind of brought that scenario up. And the person that I had the discussion with said, Pop cares about putting San Antonio in the best position to be successful and whatever sort of uh, unintended consequence, unintended consequences it has for other teams is not his concern. Yeah. There's no, so question I don't think that. it to answer your question. I don't think it would change. He will, he's going to decide who to rest based on who he thinks needs rest, not who is influenced by the result of the game. So uh, given that, 
The, the Mavericks are currently the seventh seed. Right. That's a good question. I hear. I see Kevin's finally going to ask a good question. Thank I see you. it coming. Uh-oh. Thank you. What seed are the Mavericks going to be not, uh, after game number 82? Not, not the, the one I thought you wanted. Wow. Is that the one you wanted? No. That's a good question. That is a good one. Um, I am seeing this from the Mavs slant, of course. I think that there's a very, very good chance Memphis is going to lose their last two games. I think the Mavs are certainly going to win one of their last two, if not both. And it would not surprise me that even if Utah were to rise up and win this game on their home floor tonight, which is not like that's any sort of crazy prediction. I mean, it's a 50-50 toss-up game tonight between the Mavs and the Jazz. It's two teams separated by one game in the standings, and you're playing on the opponent's floor. So obviously this is going to be a great game tonight. But I could easily see Utah on the last night of the year going to Kobe's swan song farewell, and he's got to be fired up, and the crowd's going to be electric, and the team's going to want to play well for him in his last game. So that's a very difficult game, I think, for Utah to go play in. So it's not too hard for me to concoct a scenario where the 42-40 and 40 or 43-39 and 39 Mavs are going to be six when the season ends in 60 hours from the time we're talking. Six. Six, that would give them, in the first round of the playoffs, the Oklahoma City Oklahoma Thunder. City. That's correct. And uh, I, I think that if they had any chance at all of at least winning a, a couple of games here in the playoffs, that's what they need to be doing. Playing, the, be playing, playing, Oklahoma playing City. the Thunder? Yeah. Why do you, why do you think that? Uh, I think that those Oklahoma City, I mean, I think those Golden States and those San Antonios are pretty dang good. I think Oklahoma sure, City is sure. pretty I, dang good. I was good. wondering if there was something, like my, like my thought on it, and I think you guys actually asked me about this when we talked a few weeks ago, is what's the best playoff matchup for the Mavs? And I said, well, to say there's a best playoff matchup implies there's a good one, and I don't think that there is. I mean, no. there's, a, there's a huge gulf between the top four and five through eight in the West. As a matter of fact, I, I, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I was looking at it last night. I think this is going to be the first time since 1987 that – the bottom four seeds in the Western Conference will all have less than 45 wins. There will not be a 45-win team amongst 5, 6, 7, and 8 in the West. And again, I don't think that's happened since 1987. Wow. So, so there's no good matchup for anybody at the bottom. But I do think when you look at Oklahoma City, uh, that, that's been a weird team this year. Yes. And, and I told you guys a few weeks ago that, that if you're going to base on our regular season matchups, the most competitive games that Dallas has played with anybody have been with the Thunder. Uh, a three-point loss up there, a three-point loss at American Airlines Center, and another game that got really, really close late because of a comeback by Dallas. And there's this sort of thing that's been endemic to Oklahoma City for much of the year. They don't do well for whatever reason in the fourth quarter. I think they lead the league in blown leads in the fourth quarter this year. They've gone into the fourth quarter leading and lost the game 14 times. Is that coaching? It is a first-year coach, but I don't think it's – I'm not sure that it's coaching. I, I think it's a case – it's probably in any number of things. It's point guard play, uh, although I do love Russell Westbrook, but he does have a penchant for making turnovers or bad decisions at the worst possible time. Um, I think that you, when you have two great players – and then you have a lot of complementary players around them. And let's face it, that's kind of what Oklahoma City's team is. You know, at least when you had Harden there in the past, they were better in the fourth quarter because you had another playmaker who could create and run the show in the fourth quarter. And now it's everyone playing off Durant and Westbrook. And so when you get into that situation, then sometimes you get into hero ball. And hero ball in the fourth quarter, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So that's probably why. 
you're looking at a team that uh, you know has had its troubles in the fourth quarter is because their offense degenerates into predictability and it's just you know it's reliant on the greatness of two all-star top five in Durant's case and top ten in Westbrook's case, or maybe even top five in his case. You know, you're relying on great players, but sometimes uh, great players going one-on-one over the course of a long season, and especially when you get into high-leverage playoff games, can be a problem. All right, I'm going to ask you this question off the top of my head, uh, and I'm, I'm relying on your expertise here. But in, Justin, when the when the Mavericks have played Oklahoma City this year, how much how much playing time has Justin Anderson gotten in those games? Do you know? Can you recall? Um, other than the game where the Mavs sat everyone on the second night of a back to back after they lost at home in overtime to Cleveland the night before, other than that, uh, negligible playing time. That's what I'm thinking. So I'm I'm wondering in a in a matchup there, who do you think they put Justin Anderson on? Well, I think that the game would probably start with Anderson on Durant. And at times, over the course of the game, Matthews would move over there. Yeah. But I think early in the game, you would probably want to protect Matthews from getting into foul trouble. So games would probably start with traditional, the point guard versus the point guard, shooting guard Mm -hmm. versus the shooting guard, and and three-man versus three-man matchup. But I think Matthews would move over on Durant. If anything, I would think Matthews would probably be more likely to start on Westbrook at the beginning. Yeah, that's what and I was you would, you would maybe – it would depend on who started a point for the Mavs. If Darren Williams can stay healthy, then that's how they would do it. D. Will would play Westbrook. You would put Matthews on their two guard, and then you would move – which what, Andre Roberson. Uh, and then you would put uh, you would put Anderson on Durant, and then that way you could protect Matthews from foul trouble, and then you could switch him accordingly as the game evolved and say, okay, Westbrook's hurting us. We want to put Matthews on there. Durant's hurting us. We want to put Matthews on Durant. But yeah. but if you protect them in the first few minutes from foul trouble, I think that would probably be the way that Rick would want to look at it. So you were thinking about this game last night. How much prep? Do you, do you really prepare for games? Is do you prepare for games? No. What a question. Well, no, no. If I, I was a, bro- if I was a broadcaster, I'd just show up. And do, do, do broadcasters <laughs> really do the same way you do this job? I, you mean? I'm trying to. Say, I'm trying to t- let him tell me what a dope I am. Okay. I wanted him to say great question. Something he didn't say on any of your last four questions. I've noticed. <laughs> so how much preparation do you do? Uh, for a game like, for a game like against the Jazz tonight, it's anywhere from. I have a little chart that I do with my notes on it, and and of course I know Barry and Kevin. You guys remember the great Merle Harmon, who one time I heard Merle say in a in a, in a speaking advice to young broadcasters situation, you'll do all your notes and you'll never you'll only use twenty or thirty percent of what you prepare for in each game, and I think he's probably right. So. I mean, I have an, uh, a pretty high amount of preparation, um, you know, four to six hours to make my charts. I mean, sometimes I've been able to streamline it over the years and eliminate information I know I'm not going to get to to try to make the preparation process go faster. But obviously this is a big game tonight. So, for example, I mean, just before you guys called, I'm looking at Utah and I'm going over, uh, you know, I'm writing down stats because I like to write things down because that's better for my memory retention to do it that way. Um, and so I'm looking at preparation for Chris Johnson for Utah. So probably a lot of people don't even know who that is. I mean, he's got a very normal, generic-sounding name. So who is Chris Johnson? Well, I, I looked at the last game that the Mavs and Jazz played, and I remember, you know, he's just backup small forward who is an undrafted free agent who's bounced around with several teams, and he's kind of stuck this year with Utah as a backup. 
he was the NIT MVP for Dayton in 2010. And the thing that got me really looking at him was I remember the last game. He had seven rebounds, three offensive rebounds, and a lot of them seemed like they were really big hustle plays that generated extra possessions for Utah that led to shots being made. And so right before you guys called, those were the kind of things that I was looking at. It's like, okay, I was just about to look at the last game and the play-by-play. It's like, look for all those offensive rebounds. And is my memory right? Did they all generate another possession where a shot was made by Utah? Because remember, they came back. They were down 15 points in the, in the second quarter. And they were down 10 or 11, I think, 9, 10, 11 points at the start of the fourth quarter. So that kind of stuff is the, the uh, high-level preparation if you will, that goes into I, I, uh, these games. And that, and that thing may not even come up tonight. Look, I mean, let's see how the game plays out. you got to wait and see how the game plays out. Maybe maybe I'll bring that kind of thing up tonight. Maybe I won't. But at least I want to be prepared for it to talk about it in case this backup small forward that nobody knows you know, has another big impact on the game. you got to be able to talk about that. So that's why the, the preparation is, a, is as extensive as it is. That's one real-world example I could give you of one. Mark, you know what that is? That's a great answer. Yeah, that? I'm sorry. That's a great answer. <laughs> yeah, he oh, you heard answer. me. Though. He's employing a very horn uh, mechanism there. No, I think the, I, the, Salt Lake, the Salt Lake City cell phone gremlins got in there for a yeah, second. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. He, this, this, that right there, besides the pipes, tells you why that Mark Followell does what he does and why we don't do that. Because a, we don't have the pipes for it, and b, we don't have the work ethic, and c, we don't have the memory for it either. Even oh. if we had done all that research, we couldn't have remembered it by the time Are the you game kidding? Came I wrote down Mark that we we're talking to Mark Followell and every time before I ask the question, I look to see who we're talking cuz my memory <laughs> is shot. My memory is shot. Well, that's why we have Man, these experts. I was on. I was getting ready to extol how important it is. To, you know, you guys were saying so many nice things. I was going to talk about how much I admire writers who can turn a phrase it's one of the things I'm so envious of. I'm not a writer, and I can't. I don't have the ability to turn a phrase like that. And how important it is in a democratic, free society. How important <laughs> the press and writing skills well, are. And should... then you guys go and just like drag your own selves down like that. Well, well, well you, 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 you could you could do what Kevin does when he needs to turn a good phrase. He just calls me. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm always available. <laughs> Mark, it's great having you on once again. We appreciate you taking the time. You're the best, and we enjoy listening to you. Even when the Mavericks stink, we still love uh, listening to you to describe everything that's happening out there. Well, thanks. That's nice. But just remember, a good team always makes the announcer sound better. So hopefully they'll uh, they'll they'll play well and not stink. Well, if there if there if there are ever two games of import for people to to tune into, even though tonight's game I think does go against. Uh, House the Housewives of of Dallas. What's the name of the show? The Real Housewives the Real of Dallas. Dallas. I'll, I'll, I'll have oh to I'll TiVo that. I'll, I'll but I'm gonna I'm gonna TiVo that. But I'll be watching the Mavericks live. Yeah, there you go. Mark, Thank thanks you. So, thanks so much. You guys, you got it, guys. All right, thanks. And that was Mark Followell and who Kevin? Who else? Remind me because I've forgotten. You've forgotten already. We had David Moore talking about the Cowboys. He gave us the. Did he Cowboys. say anything interesting? He I don't get, remember. He gave us the top five picks, not the top five picks, but the top five players on the Cowboys draft board. There's a difference. The top five talents on the board, not the top five guys they're going to pick necessarily if they if they could. Right. But these are the this is how they rank the talent. And I gotta tell you I gotta tell you this. I, I'm getting text messages from Evan Grant wanting to know Chomping at the bit to get what, so we're gonna have also have Evan Grant from a hotel we just had Mark Followell from a hotel room in 
Salt Utah. Lake, Salt Lake City, and now we're going to go to Evan Grant in the hotel room in Seattle, Seattle where he'll tell us how great, I'm guessing, what, what do you think the conversation will center around? No more Mazzara. No more Mazzara. So until the next time, we'd like to thank everybody for tuning in. Or is it tuning in? Or no, listening? they don't tune in. They listen in. But they need to subscribe to the podcast. How? How? Go to uh, Ranger uh, Ballsy <laughs> Podcast, at Ballsy Podcast. That's on Twitter. And also, they need to go iTunes. on Facebook and on iTunes and on Audio Boom. And on uh, you I don't know, know do you? Stuff. I'm just saying stuff now. Uh, this is where we miss Evan Grant. Everybody, thank you so much for tu- for listening. Bye.